Welcome to the first issue of the Question Period podcast, where we'll be interviewing UVic poli-sci professors. Our first guest is Dr. Justin Lifeso. A lot of students pronounce it Lifeso, but he wants it to be known. It is Lifeso, but he also wants it to be known. It it doesn't really matter that much. Um, So he will be talking about his upcoming uh, class on the politics of sports. Um, with that, uh, I will give Dr. Lifeso a chance to introduce himself and his background and his research. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I am Justin Lifeso. Uh, it doesn't matter that much, but it is Lifeso. Um, I'm from Treaty 4 Territory, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. I've been a UVic prof three years now. Um, I arrived here uh, in the fall semester of 2021. And uh, before that, I was at the University of Alberta where I did my PhD. Before that, I was in Saskatchewan and I do all sorts of work focusing on Canadian politics, but um, all manners of Canadian politics I'm interested in. And I teach uh, 101. I teach the introduction uh, to Canadian politics. I teach a fourth year seminar on neoliberalism. I teach a third year class on uh, po- critical policy studies, which you fellows have taken. Uh, I now teach a class on the politics of Western Canada. And as of next year, I'll be teaching this uh, politics and sports class. Okay. Well, we're super excited to have you on the podcast as our first guest. I also want to introduce myself. I'm Zach Greenfield. I'm a fourth-year political science student who will be co-producing and co-hosting this podcast along with Sajan. Do you want to take a sec to introduce yourself too? Yep. Uh, same as Zach. I'm a fourth-year student uh, in political science. I'm doing a minor in applied ethics. And yeah, we're looking forward to uh, putting these podcasts out and hoping that all students can benefit from hearing a different side of the professors outside of the classroom. All right. So with that, we're both super excited. We, you might have two s- recurring students next year in your class. Okay. And um, preparing for this podcast, we, we researched your paper that you had written about yeah. the connection between CFL football and yeah. identity politics. Yeah. Can you go a little bit into your inspiration for that paper, how it's kind of played into um, your inspiration for having a class on the politics Mm -hmm. of sport, and just a little bit of a summary of the research and conclusion of the paper? Uh, That that, uh, paper um, was a long time in the making. It came out in, I I think, 2020. But I had been kicking around the idea uh, of the argument in that paper for probably close to 15 years. Um, now, I'm a lifelong Saskatchewan Rough Riders fan, um, as most of us who grow up there are. I'll park that for a second. Um, but I'll just say that, you know, I cared much too much about that football team um, and have essentially for my whole life. But I, then in 2006, I was an intern in the Saskatchewan Legislative Internship Program. And in 2006, uh, in Saskatchewan, it was very clear that the NDP government at the time, uh, which had been in power for 16 years, was likely on its way out. Um, And anybody in that building at that time, whether you were certainly a Saskatchewan party, the Conservative Party in Saskatchewan, it's called the Saskatchewan Party. If you were a Sask Party MLA, you knew it. If you were an NDP MLA, you knew it too, and you were announcing that you weren't going to run. And we, the staffers knew it, and we knew it, and the media knew it. 
And the one thing that I noticed at that time was that the leader of the Saskatchewan party at that point was Brad Wall, and he became the premier and was the premier for quite a while. Uh, But at that point, he was really skillfully constructing this narrative of the governing NDP at the time being an embodiment of everything that had been wrong in Saskatchewan, which, you know, was represented by things like out-migration, people leaving Saskatchewan to go to Alberta, a history of sort of economic malaise, um, just kind of not feeling good. And he skillfully sort of tied himself and the Saskatchewan party to more hopeful aspirations that things could be better if only the province sort of rid itself of the burdensome socialism in their mind of the NDP. So I watched this take place. I watched it unfold in front of me when I was in the gallery watching question period. And then the next year, 2007, I was actually overseas uh, teaching English at the time, but I watched from there as they won the election, which we all knew that they probably were going to. Um, They won the election and then two weeks later, this is November of 07, and then a couple of weeks later, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders won, won the Grey Cup for the first time since 1989, which was whatever. I was very happy. I was at a Canadian theme bar in Seoul, and I had a great time. But it was also very clear to me at that time that Wall, who was a legitimate football fan, but was making a really concerted effort to tie himself to the good feelings of the the Rough Riders winning as being mm, reflective or an avatar almost of the good feelings that were starting to appear in Saskatchewan at that time. Because while there had been all of these feelings, these sort of negative affects in Saskatchewan for so long, like our kids are leaving for Alberta, those sorts of things, at this point, the price of natural resources has all spiked. Oil, uranium, and in Saskatchewan, particularly important is potash, which is a, uh, a mineral that's used for fertilizer, lots of um, nitrogen in it. And I watched, I, I came home after teaching in Korea for that year, and then I was in Saskatchewan for a number of years after that, and watched as sort of a bystander, a non-academic bystander at that point, I was just working for government, but watching how skillfully he was able to tie together um, everybody feeling good about people having jobs and coming home, the riders being good, all of these things. And it was really, you know, I felt for me at that time that he was using the riders as um, uh, an example or a metaphor. and was using the sort of identity of the rider nation as being a kind of new Saskatchewan. But I was just, again, I was just watching all of this and I didn't really, you know, it was just kind of in the back of my mind. I was working for government, I was doing my master's degree about Canadian regionalism, and then I went off in 2013 to do my PhD, which has nothing to do with this, aside from the fact that it deals with Saskatchewan. And then I was doing my PhD and, I was doing my PhD and some friends of mine and colleagues were putting together a panel for the Canadian Political Science Association that dealt with affect, affect theory in politics. And I had not been really exposed to this particular approach. But affect 
theory, you know, and it's a theory that doesn't just exist in political science. If anything, we've only recently sort of come into terms with or come into engaging with it. It essentially looks at emotions or affects, and I won't get into the difference between them. I'll just use them interchangeably. And in the uh, and how we feel about things, and it, when deployed in discussions in political science or other social sciences, we can think about the political dimensions of these feelings. And for me, it was just like a, a light bulb going off in my head, being like, okay, I had been thinking about this for so long, but until that point, my sort of training in political science hadn't really given me the tools to put together to think about how Wall was doing this. And once I found the tools of affect theory, it all sort of came together. And then so I started writing this paper and I came up with this argument that the history of Saskatchewan politics is the, is you can be told through the affect of despair, right? That the um, going back to the founding of the province in 1905, the creation of the province, I should say, in 1905, and then for the next like hundred years, it is characterized for the most part by this economic malaise and just kind of kind of feeling crappy. And I grew up in the 90s, which was in particular not a great time to grow up in, in Saskatchewan. And it was in particular a really terrible time to be a Rough Rider fan. And so I made this argument that the Rider Nation, as articulated by Brad Wall, and at this particular point in the early 2000s, was an expression of the rejection of that particular kind of despair. And that he was able to tie himself to the fortunes of the team and to the fortunes of the province, feeling good at that particular time. And then I made an argument, and then I wrote that part first, and then I realized that only some resentment, or only some despair is actually being valorized here. And that it is essentially the affects of white settler Saskatchewan folks like myself that is being prioritized in that. So that's the paper, essentially. Um, but that did, and then I published it in uh, Sociology of Sports, which then brought me into, uh, revealed to me that there is this entire sports and politics literature out there, this critical sports literature that exists. And there, a lot of it comes from Canada. And so that sort of got me into thinking about the power of sports, the political power of sports. And so I've sprinkled it into classes before. I'm sure, you know, in that policy class, I think I probably talked about it when I talked about like, you know, uh, policies of heritage and culture and that sort of thing, right? And only recently have I had the opportunity to turn it into something more. Awesome. And yeah, that kind of ties into this question that we had uh, lined up was how, how can the how can sports um, or the study of sports help us better understand the complex relationships between political identities and power dynamics? I mean, in almost as many ways as we can think of those concepts, we can find some way to think of them in terms of sports. They've probably been articulated in terms of sports. So if you think about um, race, right? If we think about, and I, I'm not going to contain myself to Canada because I'm not containing the class to Canada, even though I'm a Canadian politics professor. But if we think about like race, like when I think about um, sports in the last, let's say, decade, some of the big sort of flashpoints that come up to me include things like Colin Kaepernick kneeling on the sidelines um, and then the enormous backlash of what I would call like conservative white NFL fans, uh, you know, criticizing him for politicizing that. 
uh, if I'm thinking about power and gender, you know, one of the first things I will probably think to in, in the Canadian context is the recent Canadi Hockey Canada scandals, right? The revelation that Hockey Canada was essentially had a fund that it was using uh, to defend or settle these cases that had been had come up against hockey players. And I think that, frankly, most people who grew up in this country and within hockey culture were not necessarily that surprised that this culture exists in junior hockey. Um, but there was still this revelation that there was kind of like institutionalized at the highest level. Um, you know, we can think of sexuality, think of the, uh, the sort of what I would call the trans moral panic right now. And one of the flashpoints of that being, you know, um, the panic surrounding trans women competing in women's sports and having some sort of uh, unfair advantage, right? I think that the, the, this class that I'm going to be teaching reflects something that is you can think about this in, in two ways. You can think about it, number one, is that if you're a sports fan, you know, you can look at sports as perhaps this area in which politics operates in a way you didn't necessarily recognize before. But as a social science student or practitioner, you can also use it as just a gateway or a pathway into thinking about how the things that you're studying exist maybe in places that you, you hadn't recognized. And so that's kind of what I was thinking when I, when I put together the class. Yeah, and listening to you talk about your inspiration for the paper and just how sports becomes intertwined with politics, I couldn't help but think of things like the Vancouver Olympics sure. and other kind of broader sports events. And in relation to politics, how sports is so emotional that it can obscure political intention mm -hmm. and political implications behind that. We look at Vancouver and the displacement of homeless people mm -hmm. prior to the 2010 Olympics. Mm -hmm. How much things like the golden goal scored by Sidney Crosby mm -hmm. completely obscure kind of some, some broader political effects that occur around these sporting events. And political how we, affects and political effects. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I think it's super, super interesting. And kind of going off that, looking ahead, how do you envision the future of nationwide sports related identities and the relationship to broader political movements in Canada? How how do sports intersect with political movements or Alternatively, kind of going off what we've been saying is how do they prevent political movements at the same time? I mean, I think they, um, I don't think they do it in any inherent way. Like, I, I don't think that sports is, sports and sporting um, is, in, is, like it is deployed in any one particular way just by the nature of what it is. I, I suspect, and this is just me, you know, kind of riffing here, but there, so there isn't one particular uh, character of sports as it relates to politics. It can be used in all sorts of ways. So uh, I think your point about 
the Vancouver Olympics is uh, really insightful. I'm sure I'm going to cover Olympics generally, um, the political economy of who gets them, that sort of thing, what happens in those locations um, in the class. But at the same time, so if you take the Olympics and we could take we could think about that, we can also perhaps think about various political statements. Uh, I remember the the black sprinters uh, raising their fists and black power salute. Uh, I can think of, um, you know, I can think of other sorts of moments in um, Olympic history that have been used in order, in ways that were perhaps more uh, subversive with respect to political power. So there's nothing... The, the the sort of like institutions of the International Olympic Committee uh, are I think pretty well documented corrupt and awful, but that being said, like various sorts of things have happened in political ways during the Olympics that don't necessarily aren't necessarily characterized by domination or liberation in one particular way or another. Right? It it, it can run both ways. So we can take one particular sport, one sporting event, and look at various sorts of, you know, the different dynamics. So I'm a kind of a guy who likes Foucault. So Foucault said that power is everywhere and wherever there's power, there's resistance, right? So if we're looking at uh, any sort of political arena, and that could be a literal arena, a literal sports arena where political acts are taking place, there, there could be, uh, you know, there could be all sorts of things happening simultaneously wherein, you know, you're perhaps you're watching you're at a hockey game and you're watching you know uh some sort of demonstration by the armed forces or something some sort of like uh you know there's actually a, a punk song called dear coach's corner where it talks about like soldiers descending from the rafters at a hockey game you could watch that sort of uh symbolism of state power and then you could also refuse to stand for the national anthem at the same time, right? So there's this act of sort of uh, blunt force uh, nationalism happening at the same time that somebody is like, no, I'm not going to do that, right? So I don't think that sports in particular uh, are have an inherent political character one way or the other, although I do think that because of the nature of the sort of collective event they lend themselves to various sorts of uh, political developments. Yeah, so like, if if I understand what you're saying correctly, sports is kind of a medium by which politics operates in many forms. Sure, uh, that, but, uh, that it has the potential to, yeah. Um, that's... I don't think it's a necessarily I don't want to I don't really believe in neutrality so much. I don't think it's like a neutral space. But it is and I I I do think it's probably prone to more oppressive sorts of forces. But I don't think it is inherently that. Yeah, and just jumping in here a little bit on that same point is kind of you see how for instance in feminist movements um Mia Hamm has kind of been employed as oh like this figure who kind of broke some barriers by when celebrating a game winning goal taking off her shirt sure. or you see how um, the U.S. Women's American the U.S. 
uh, women's soccer team mm -hmm. has used their platform to advocate for women's rights or women's uh, pay mm -hmm. and uh, a decrease in the gender wage gap in in many regards. So in that sense, sports can be it's not necessarily that sports are political, but they can become political politicized or even athletes can make them politicized to make their point because they have that platform. Simultaneously, though, at the same time. So the women's national uh, team uh, comes out, you know, forcefully uh, on, you know, gender pay or, or, or uh, equitable pay uh, across national teams, right? So in that moment, one thing has happened – there had to be inequality to start with. So there was already a political, there was already a political reality of inequality. And this, of course, is also the case in Canada. But then also there is the resistance. Um, and I'd, I would actually be, I don't want to say, I would be sort of hesitant to say that it becomes politicized. I just think that it's, because that carries with it some sort of baggage in a way that allows the sort of like, guy who probably frankly looks like me but you know is a fan of the cowboys or something like that to be like don't politicize my game right this is just life these these are this is a microcosm of society and all of all of society is open to sort of political processes and uh, and events yeah like talking about that person who says like don't politicize my sport made me made me think of the flip side yeah. the state side and when you have, you know, scandals like state-sanctioned doping yeah. in Russia or just the amount of effort and kind of obscure means by which countries vie to host the Olympics mm -hmm. or host the World Cup, I think that you can't present a good argument that there is no politics in sports or that sports should never be politicized because the states themselves, they use it as a means to an end, as a way to legitimize themselves, to form identity, to effectually mobilize the population behind something abstract that is kind of helps in a way to remove them from their other present realities, I guess. Sure. I mean, yeah, we could talk about that. I mean, and if we talk about, want to talk about the Olympics, or, you know, why did, you know, uh, the Soviet bloc countries put so much emphasis on on sports, right? Like there's just national pride that gets wrapped up in this and then so and thus states use them for their own particular purposes. But we don't even have to think just at the national state level. You can think of, you know, the extent to which, you know, very, very wealthy individuals have had success essentially shaking down re like subnational and uh, local governments to fund sports arenas using like local pride and boosterism as a justification for it. I was in Edmonton when Daryl Cates, you know, essentially held the Oilers ransom saying he was going to move them to Seattle unless Edmonton paid a bunch of money to get that arena built. And so, you know, I think that uh, national states uh, as well as sort of state structures at different levels use them. Um, but it's, it's also quite complex, right? There's, you know, the sort of inter or entanglement of, uh, states and corporate interests and yeah, these affects and, uh, and identities.
I got a question I think that you might enjoy. Okay. Um, kind of going off that, the corporate interests and and things of, of that nature. How would you say neoliberalism as a governing structure operates in the realm of sports? How has it affected sports? How will sports continue to develop in our neoliberal world? I don't think that there's anything, like again, inherently neoliberal about sports, but I think you could look at sports um, as one, you know, what, one area of life in which neoliberalism has sort of been able to burrow down into, perhaps, or used in a way, in neoliberal ways, we'll say. And, you know, you can say, um, and, and sometimes we're getting to a bit of a stretch when we talk when we talk about neoliberalism, but I've actually, in my neoliberalism seminar, for example, I remember, you know, people have done papers about, uh, you know, the uh, deregulation of the skiing industry and um, how skiing has become a more sort of elitist sport because of the deregulated nature of it. it used to be more of a kind of an egalitarian thing. I think that you could talk about um, the use of the the Canadian hockey player uh, as a kind of ideal type for the hardy, rugged individual you know, we all sort of pull up our own bootstraps kind of a thing in a very, in a way that is quite consistent with sort of neoliberal subjectivities. Um, which then it just gets, goes to show number one, that neoliberalism is quite malleable in a way that it's like critic people who don't agree with me in terms of how important I think it is point out, well, if you think it's everywhere, it's nowhere. But then also I think it does show the extent to which you can look at so many sort of concepts related to politics and the political through sports in a way that I hope makes it more interesting for people to learn next year. Yeah, and I think um, we came into this with a little bit of a idea that, oh, like there's going to be like this intertwining of sports and politics, but really there's sports and then there's the politics that happens afterwards or that might happen because of it, but not not because sports are political, but just how it is perceived, how it affects the mm -hmm. community. Um, and then kind of bringing this to like the international stage, I know um, last year we took a class called uh, Authoritarianism and Populism, talking about how Kazakhstan employed sport to mm -hmm. re-legitimize themselves after the release of the Borat movie uh, in the international uh, frame. Um, so they they spent a lot of money and they invested it to cycling and they have one of the top cycling programs in the world. And I was wondering if that was something that would get touched upon, like or some sort of like how like legitimacy is kind of built by or through sport. I mean, I think you kind of talk about it in your paper mm -hmm. in the sense that uh, Walls used the, the Rough Riders to kind of elevate his mm -hmm. his platform. First of all, I didn't know that. Uh that's fascinating and I probably will have to talk about it now but it's not entirely surprising like okay let's go back to the Vancouver Olympics and own the podium I start sometimes with the question when I do that policy class I start with the question of why does it matter that Canada wasn't very good in the Olympics right like that's 
like legitimately kind of puzzling to me. Like it's not puzzling. It's sort of intuitive being like, no, you want to do well in these sorts of things. But why? Like, you know, it, it, I think that's actually a really interesting question. And so the, the idea that it could be used as a way to make yourself look like a more serious actor on the world stage, at once it, it is entirely silly. But it also makes, again, sort of intuitive sense, right? And so uh, for me, taking those things that seem intuitive and sort of denaturalizing them, I mean, like, how did we get to this place where something, like, seems so common sense, even though really, if you think about it, it's kind of silly. Like, that is a really interesting sort of area of exploration. Yeah, and kind of keeping this example going in in that piece, I forget exactly who wrote it, but they... They talk about the legitimacy doesn't even come from the fact that the team is national. In fact, most of the riders that cycle for this team are not from Kazakhstan. Sure. And they also touch on the point that just the fact that they can hire and sign really, really successful athletes from other countries is enough of a legitimacy-building tool for the team to achieve the end of the regime in Kazakhstan. Yeah, like that's yeah, that, that's 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 fascinating, and I mean, I guess we're also c- kind of seeing that with um, uh, in golf with the with the Saudi. Uh, I can't even remember what the name of the like Saudi sponsored tour is now. Um, being like, they're just going to throw money at like big stars, at, in a in a in a way that. Uh, they hope will achieve some sort of political end. Yeah, talking about the Saudis, we can talk about soccer players in that area too, right? They're throwing absolutely ridiculous sums of money to bring foreign players to play in their leagues to, from what I've heard, I've read this in a couple pieces, is trying to change the picture of their states, trying to begin a move to a... I don't know if this might be an overextension, but to increase the Western perspective of mm-hmm. their nations, mm-hmm. which is a, a really, really interesting concept. Yeah, and just making sure that we cite our sources and stay within some there sort of There you go. Good students. Uh, the, the article that we're citing for Kazakhstan is called uh, Sport and Soft Authoritarian National Building, Nation Building, and it's by Natalie Kocher-Koch, K-O-C-H. If anyone wants to look it up and have a read, it's what's the what, what was what journal was it in? Um, it is in political geography. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just I have a paper out that was just published in political geography. Yeah. Good journal. It's in 2013. Okay, um, article. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, kind of again, t- going back to what we were talking about, like international legitimacy building. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we have the Olympics coming up this year. Um, if you have any thought, like anything that you are conceiving for the course that might tie into maybe something we should look at in the Olympics or kind of follow um, or pay attention to when we're watching the Olympics, something that might be able to be addressed in the class. You know, I I, I haven't gotten that far in thinking about the class, but I will use myself as an example. I remember watching short track speed skating during the Vancouver Olympics. And let's be clear, I think short track speed skating is just... the best winter olympic sport it is absolute chaos there's nothing more fun but i'm getting really really excited and worked up when canada was doing well 
Um, and then being like, why do I care? And I, so I think that, you know, at, as we, that will probably be one of the things I'm encouraging my students to do is to use these moments where you care about something like that uh, and be like, why and to what effect? Um, and sort of using themselves and, and interrogating like their own reaction to these sports moments. Yeah, and one thing that I'm kind of thinking about, kind of going off that immediately, I went to, why is it so powerful to prohibit Russian athletes from from competing in the Olympics? Mm. Why is that such a devastating sanction? And what role does that play? Why are we doing that? And why does it make Russia as a state so angry? Right. Well, and I think, you know, again, I'm just riffing here. But I think we just talked about why they would, right? Because at the sort of international level, there are like national states seem to think that that sports at this level um, can serve some sort of purpose for them. And to be cast out of uh, an event like that is a um, reflection on them. And Putin likes sports a lot. Like I remember... Back when I used to care about MMA, like he was a big Fedor Emelianenko fan and it was all about like sort of masculinity and combat sambo and, you know, and, and, and so some of it I think is probably the fact that so many states are run by men and we get wrapped up in our own masculinities and, you know, we think that sports is a good demonstration of that. But I think that other parts of it and maybe uh, I'm sure there's better people to speak to the IR components of sports. But I think that um, we've already sort of gone to some of the reasons why that sort of question is so heated. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting how maybe the lack of representation at the international level for Russian athletes or even being able to represent their state at the Olympics can have like sort of a um, identity or it can play into their identity as a Russian athlete. Like, oh, we we're part of this Russian state that doesn't, um, that isn't able to compete. So what, where does that leave us? Maybe Mm. it allows them to, or maybe it creates, uh, this separation or this, uh, estrangement from the state, or maybe it unifies them even stronger to the state. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's very interesting how that can be played. And I know Zach and I, we both have, um, have backgrounds in sports and that's why we're so interested in this course. Um, and I'll actually let, Zach asked this next question because it was it's a great question he formulated it but yeah so we'll we'll go with that quickly um yeah so in I I'm a hockey player mm-hmm. um I I saw the <laughs> a lot of the bad things that we've talked sure about did, already yeah. and uh, I, I can recognize those things but one thing that I have found super positive is the recent creation of the PWHL mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. kind of the support it's garnered and simple things like that I used to internalize, Mm. you know, things like, you know, oh yeah, it makes sense that girls shouldn't hit in hockey. Mm. And then until the creation of the PWHL, when they actually took the time to ask the girls who play hockey, Mm -hmm. would you like to body check? Mm -hmm. They said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing this, this shift, particularly in hockey. So the question I formulated, um, kind of goes as follows. So how would one in the realm of the politics of sports appro- approach current movements such as the development of the PWHL 
and the ever-present masculinity in sports. Is there a beginning of a displacement of kind of historical norms in the realm of sports, given like advancements like that, the examples we've talked about in soccer, and, and those kind of things? I mean, to say, it was, to say it's the beginning of anything, I think the one thing we have to be careful is that we're not like sort of erasing all sorts of, you know, women who have uh, trailblazed before Billie Jean King or whatever we want, whatever, whoever, whoever we want to talk about. I also, sure, possibly, and I don't want to take away uh, from positive developments like that. I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. That's probably my own neuroses. But it's like, what's the backlash to any sorts of progress, right? We watched, you know, there was this sort of um, sort of dominant liberal narrative for like 20 or 30 years that we're slowly making more progress with respect to like um, uh, gender and sexually queer folks, their rights and their ability to live their lives. And now we're seeing this massive sort of clawback of those rights and those freedoms, the likes of which we probably wouldn't have imagined 10 years ago. So I'm always sort of mm, wary of, okay, something, something positive has happened. What is the reaction going to be from those who oppose that? Um, and so, you know, I felt when, and again, as being a, a football fan, Unsurprising for anybody who ever met me, that's the only sport I could ever play competitively. Um, you know, I felt like the sort of stand that Kaepernick and others were making at that point in time was a positive development. But then I watched the sort of backlash uh, towards that, right? So I guess that is my my first reaction is like, okay, how is this going to be used in a way that is uh, more threatening? Yeah, yeah, I, that's a, that's a, the Colin Kaepernick point is a really good one. Where where is Colin Kaepernick now? What you know, like what the reaction that followed that, although the beginning was so positive, you have a very good point in the fact that eventually the other shoe did drop and the negative counter reaction happened. So I think that that's that that's another important thing that we should look out for when whenever there is the news of positive development, mm -hmm. we should be weary for what may follow. Um, so I guess just kind of concluding this podcast, mm -hmm. let's uh, just your your general ideas for the course, you know, what kind of assignments might be part of it. And yeah, any any comments you have on yeah, that? Yeah, you're doing, you're, you're fishing on behalf of your peers here. Um, you know, our department is known as one that values writing. And so there'll be some writing associated with it. I think they'll probably... It kind of depends, right? Like right now, the, the enrollment cap is going to be 50. We'll see where, if, if it, I'm going to advertise it around campus and see if there's, a, you know, interest uh, in folks not in from Poly. And we'll see, well, like what the wait list look like and whether I can erase that. And then depending if I have any support in terms of a TA or something like that and how much I can grade, I'd be willing to like just open up the, um, the possibility of writing on whatever folks want to write about, right? Um, in terms of like a research paper. So I think that, that right now that's kind of the way I'm leaning towards. Um, and then probably maybe even like smaller reflections on particular um, 
events or sort of vignettes maybe I could say where we'd look at these like various sorts of points in time uh, these sports events and how they relate to to politics in my seminar I do actually assign them to do a podcast in my neoliberalism seminar um, you know I'm, I'm trying to think kind of come up with like more interesting assignments um, to keep myself and the students engaged all those sorts of things are sort of uh, possible at this point Awesome. And yeah, so a couple final questions, just one more um, academic geared towards what students can expect to see in mm -hmm. this course, and then there will be a fun one. But in terms of what students should expect in this course, what sort of mindset or what do you think um, is the, what should students expect this t course to touch upon is really probably the broader question. Sure. Uh I think first of all, we'll probably start. We'll start with different perspectives on power and sports, uh, looking through these lenses of whether it be race or class or colonialism. And then, I uh, that will and so it might be a little slower, right off the hop. I'll I'll probably make sure that I'm always doing like the current events things that I tend to do in my class, and I'm sure there will be lots when it comes to sports. Um, and then once we sort of have the tools collectively, we have the tools to really analyze what we're seeing. Then I think we'll probably look at particular cases, being like, okay, let's look at I don't know, seventy two summit series. You know, we could. Uh, I think for sure I'm 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 going to cover sort of black maybe black protest would be like the week on and here I'm thinking about I could even talk about like Muhammad Ali and uh, all the way up to to Kaepernick um, one specifically about uh, for sure for sure I'm going to rail against billionaire owners um, shaking down cities and states and provinces for fun public dollars um, yeah so I think that it'll be thematic and conceptual particularly to start and then we'll sort of narrow down on these particular examples that are obvious in terms of like this like you you can't deny here that sports is political awesome and yeah just the final question uh i remember when we took um poly 369 with you last uh last year first question you asked when we came into classes where is a good place to eat? Yeah. What is the best food recommendation you've gotten? Or what would you say is the best food recommendation you've gotten? I ask every semester. <laughs> I get very funny answers that are very undergraddy, including like, okay, this is the best place you can go for a good deal on like wings and a beer on this particular day. Um, I think, you know, I, 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 th I think it was a student that first like, uh, opened me up to dumpling drop and then I realized that you can get dumpling drop at Driftwood Brewery and going to Driftwood for beer and dumplings is probably like my favorite Victoria thing to do and so that was a really solid recommendation awesome well uh, I'll definitely uh, go look out for that recommendation and go try it for myself but I want to take the moment to thank you for being our very first guest on the question period podcast here at UVic and I want to thank Saj for helping me develop the podcast. And we will see you again very shortly for another episode. Thank you.